Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's word. I'm so thankful that you are here today. If you're online, if you're watching online at home or wherever you are, we're grateful that you are with us. We've started a series called The Savior Has Come. And last week, Pastor Josh introduced us into that series uh, and he looked at the end of Matthew chapter 1. He looked at a portion of scripture and looked at Joseph and the angel having an encounter and an interaction with one another. And I want to continue on uh, with that narrative of the Savior has come. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 2, literally right where Pastor Josh left off. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV translation. And it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. I learned that particular line of scripture. I grew up listening to Andre Crouch in his Christmas album. And he has a song called Take Me to Jesus. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? So that's how I learned it. All to say, when you're listening to worship songs, the scriptures are there. You may learn something, okay? Just be blessed by that, okay? And then verse 3 starts off and it says, When King Herod heard this, when he heard about these astrologers coming, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. Verse 4. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. After the Milwaukee Bucks won the championship this past year, there was a commercial that came out by Nike that showed Giannis, uh, he's the MVP Uh, And they showed Giannis when he was a child saying that he wanted to be an NBA champion. And it was cool because they showed that commercial as he won the championship. I'm going to read another portion of scripture to you that's almost like that. It's the fulfillment of this prophecy that we just heard. We heard this prophecy where Micah the prophet in Micah chapter 5 says there's going to be a king who will rule his people, but he'll be a shepherd for his people. And then Jesus says these words, In John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, listen to this. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. One of the telltale signs that it is Christmas season isn't just by the lights you may see on your neighbor's homes or the the cold weather. It's not just by the sales that the stores are begging you to buy at. It's not just the music that you hear. In fact, it's not even the peppermint spice latte that you may like from your favorite coffee shop. But if we're all honest, the way that we can tell that it's the Christmas season is by the amount of packages that either you or your neighbor are receiving from Amazon at this moment. I am 100% judging you and that's okay. Because that is truly the telltale sign of Christmas. All the packages. Listen, at one point, my wife and I, we live on a cul-de-sac. And I've seen that poor Amazon driver. He's been doing 
he's been doing donuts the entire time in my neighborhood. I feel so bad for the brother. I wanted to invite him in for some coffee. I was like, man, just come in, brother. Just come in. But that's truly the telltale sign of knowing that it is the Christmas season, the amount of packages that you or your neighbor are receiving at this time. And I remember when the online craze of being able to purchase things online actually got really big. I remember reading a news article. This was back in 2013. And I read an interesting news article. It was about a father who had this longing desire to purchase an Xbox for his son. It was the new Xbox was coming out. And, you know, he wanted to be a good dad and give his kids good gifts. And he wanted to buy his son an Xbox. And so he went everywhere. He went to Toys R Us. Come on, R.I.P. Toys R Us. Can we just... Moment, just a moment. I miss going to Toys. That big giraffe done got me through my life, okay? He went to Toys R Us. He went to Target. He went to Best Buy. He went to all these places and could not find the Xbox completely sold out. And so what he did was he decided to go online. So he goes on eBay and he found that someone was selling the Xbox for $550, which was the retail price. He goes, this is perfect. And so he looks and he's trying to see if it's verified, if the person, you know, you want to make sure it's not a robot. You want to make sure it's a human. Rule number one of buying online, right? So he's like looking, he's reading to see the guy's verification status. He's like, okay, good, all things check out. He reads the description and inside of the description, it says, okay, he's reading it, picture of an Xbox. Okay, perfect, cool, great. These are the pictures. Okay, great, everything matched up. He was excited, gets his PayPal account, hits send, gets the order in, he's excited. He's like, this is going to be the best Christmas ever. Well, sure enough, he tracked uh, that, that purchase, and he was trying to see when it was going to come in, and the day had arrived, okay? It was here. He was ready to receive that UPS brother with all his love, and he was going to give him a big hug and get that Xbox from him. But when the guy came, it was actually an envelope, and he was shocked because he was expecting to have this huge box, and he opens the envelope, and in complete shock, Literally, the, the, the eBay guy sold him a picture of an Xbox. This was all over the news. I'm not making this up. He sold him a picture of an Xbox for $550. The guy was irate. He was fuming. He was so upset. He literally goes to the corporate ladder of eBay trying to get this guy, get him off your site. He was upset. And when I remember when I read the article thinking to myself, um, I can see why you're upset. That's a lot of money comma, but it was in the description, right? It was written in the description. You know, when I think about that, it just reminds me that so many times we wrestle as humans, we wrestle with unmet expectations. And so what happens when you have an expectation for something and it doesn't come the way you want it to? For example, what if you thought I'd be married at this time of my life and you're not, and you have to deal with that unmet expectation? What happens when you say, man, I wanted to get my degree in four years and now it's been eight and a half years? Maybe you wanted to have children and you had this image of what parenting would look like and then maybe your child has a health issue and you have to wrestle through the unmet expectations. Maybe you thought your marriage would look one way and it's completely different unmet expectations. It's something that each of us have to wrestle with, this tension of unmet expectations. And when we read today's portion of scripture, in Matthew chapter 2, we actually see this playing out. We see this tension that lies within the scripture. And tucked inside of this amazing Christmas story, when we kind of boil it down, there's this, this area that I want to point out to you. So looking at verse 6, this is what it says. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a messianic prophecy. What that means is there were prophets who would hear from God and they will foretell about the coming king, the coming Messiah, who would save the people of Israel and make everything right. And so hundreds of years before this moment that we read in Matthew chapter 2, this was a prophecy given by the prophet Micah, who happened to be a shepherd as well. God gives him this download. And inside of this, tucked inside of this verse 6 here, this prophetic word is literally this, this phrase that is so powerful. And here's where we see our tension. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. The Israelites had waited a very long time for this to happen. And the question we can look at is what happens when you're expecting an earthly ruler and you're given an eternal ruler who shepherds? What happens when you think it's going to look one way, but then God comes and does something completely different than you thought? And it's here as we look at this passage of scripture that we see this wrestle between what we want and the way we want it and what God wants and how he is going to do it. And I want to encourage us today as we continue to talk about how the Savior has come. I want to give you the title of my message. It's this, the Savior has come to shepherd us. We may have expected one thing. We may have wanted a ruler to look a certain type of way, but we got something completely different. When I look at this, this story, when I, when I look at how this story plays out, every time Christmas comes around and I read this story of the birth of Jesus, I'm often, I'm often asking myself, why didn't they celebrate? Like, where's the baby shower? That's what I'm looking for. In the community center, because I'm Puerto Rican, and we always do baby showers with like 187 people and DJs in a community center. But that's what I'm looking as I read the text. I'm asking myself, where, why didn't they celebrate? They had been waiting. This was not like, okay, they waited for nine months. This was centuries they had waited for the coming king. And why, why is it that as they waited and they waited, that when the moment finally came, there was anger? In fact, verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2, it says that Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. You know, in order for us to understand their frustration in the moment, it's so important that we kind of get a history as to what God was doing in the people of Israel. You see, the people of Israel had been governed, governed for a good portion of time as God's chosen people. He governed them uh, through prophets and priests, and he used judges. And then we get to the book of 1 Samuel, and we see the Israelite people going, I don't like this anymore. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. And they go to Samuel, and they begin to demand for a king because they wanted to be like everyone else. And so from, the, hist from the, the point of Israel's history, you see them fighting for an earthly ruler. They wanted someone who can be present and be in the moment. And that leads us all the way to when we get to King Herod. King Herod, who was a, a puppet put in place by the Romans. He was, uh, he was over uh, the, the people of, of Israel, but he was a puppet. But while we know King Herod for being a person who committed genocide on little baby boys, we also do know this, 
there's some things historically about Herod that were very good. Herod actually put the Israelites back on the map. He was actually known as a brilliant architect. And he designed the largest enclosed temple of its time. It was two times bigger than any temple in the known world. So what happens with Herod is you have to understand, King Herod comes onto the scene, and while he's a puppet, he is also giving them a, a sense of uh, security, a sense of wealth, a sense of power, and now the Israelites are back on the map. Things are looking good for them at this time. While, they, while he is a puppet for the Romans, you know, the Romans are leaving them alone. In fact, the Romans even gave him the title King of the Jews, because of the people that he governed. So even think of the tension that we find within the text as astrologers, magi coming from the east come to the king, the self-proclaimed or the, the given king of the Jews, the appointed king of the Jews, and they say, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? That paints a picture of why Herod was so disturbed and why the Israelites, why, the, why all of Jerusalem were upset with him. Things were looking good. Do we really have to shake it up? Everything is looking fine, and we have to ask ourselves, what happens when, we, when, when things are going very well, and then God decides to shake something up? But God, things have been looking so good for us, and it's here in this portion of Scripture that we see their desire for an earthly ruler was tied to the fact that they had spent so much time waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then waiting again, and then waiting some more. And there's something about an earthly ruler that represents this moment of peace. Whenever politicians or people in office all around the world, not just here, when they're making their claims to, 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 to get into office, one of the things you see is them making promises. Things will get better. It's going to be good. And we see that this desire for momentary peace is something that resides inside of each and every one of us because each of us desire to be rulers of our own lives. Each of us have this longing desire to be in charge of our way. We want to do it our way. We want to do it the way that we think is best. We want to do it in a way that, that, listen, God, we don't care about how you want to do it. We want to do it. We see this biblically. Esau is willing to rush a meal at the expense of his God-given birthright. We see Abraham and Sarah willing to rush a promised son by, uh, uh, by the birth of Ishmael. We see King Saul promise that Samuel will come back and be willing to sacrifice with him, and he rushes the process. Because the truth is, each of us desire to be our own rulers. If you're online, you're choosing to be your own ruler. Each of us have this desire inside of us. In fact, the apostle Paul will equate it. He would say it in Romans that it's the law that is at work within us. It's this, this desire to do what we think is right in our own eyes. This desire to, to do things as we want to. You know, you, each of us have this happen in our lives. You know that the, the relationship that you're in may not end in marriage, but it feels good for the moment. We know that God has, maybe God has spoken to you about your job and maybe your job has been very difficult for you, but you know that dif difficulties can't be directional. And so you know God wants you to stay put, but you're trying to rush the job and find a new job and do things in your own way. 
maybe the, the, the challenges you're facing with your finances, you decide, I'm going to rush the process and I'm not going to give God what he's due with the tithe because I want to rush so that I can pay this and pay that and make the ends meet. Friends, I'm not judging you. I've been in every single one of those situations. This is what God is showing us, that each inside of each and every one of us, there is a ruler. Each and every one of us long to be in charge of our lives. Each and every one of us desire uh, just this, this longing to be in charge. In fact, I love how author John Ortberg, he's, a, he's an author out in California, he says it like this, wise people build their lives around what is eternal and squeeze in what is temporary, not the other way around. But if we're honest, how many times have each and every one of us try to make what is temporary fit really good and then squeeze in what is eternal? I'll come to church for an hour. It's all good. But the rest of the week, I'm going to do me. Think of how many times in your own life you've done this. How many times in my life that I've tried to be in charge and I've tried to rule my own life. And this is, what the, this is the tension that we saw as the Israelites in Matthew chapter 2 were longing, desiring for a ruler. They've been waiting. And when Jesus came, it looked completely different. You know, I, I got to be honest, and this is a confession. This is a confessional moment for me. I'm being honest and transparent. So to all my native New Yorkers and New York friends that may be watching online, I actually really enjoy Chicago sports teams. I got to be honest with you. You know, as long, as long as they're not playing the Knicks, you know, and as long as they're not playing the Yankees, I'm okay. I'm going to be cheering you. I'm going to be cheering you guys on, okay? It's going to be all right. But one of the main reasons why I actually enjoy Chicago sports teams is because of the mascots. I mean, like, you guys got the Chicago Bears. Like, that's aggressive. I feel, like, scared. Like, ooh. You get the Chicago Bulls. Like, they got horns. They chase after you. Scary. You get the Chicago Blackhawks. I don't even know what that is, but it just sounds very, very intimidating. And then you get the Cubs, which are like small bears, which I'm still scared of. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a small bear. I'm still very scared of that. But when I think about uh, the, the, the Chicago teams and all their mascots, I don't know if you know this, but if Christians, if we were to have a mascot, our mascot would be, guess what, drum roll please, it would be sheep. Some of you felt like that was very anticlimactic. You were like. Sheep. Not the sharpest tools in the shed, but sheep. You know, they make a nice sound. You know what I mean? Like sheep, that's, that's who we get. No, listen, throughout scripture, the Bible tells us that we are likened to sheep. In fact, in Isaiah, it says we are likened to sheep because we have gone astray. That's our mascot, the sheep. You know, let me give you some fun facts about sheep. Sheep wander. They just, ah, ah, ah. sheep wander. That's what they do. They do their own thing. Sheep have been known, literally, listen to this. They have been known to eat themselves off of a cliff. They will be grazing, eating grass, and not even realize, and their appetite will lead them off of a cliff. Someone said, Dito. I'm like, Really? Sheep wander, and when they wander, they get so afraid, they find themselves in bushes, and they start, ah, and they start doing that so that predators can hear. This is sheep. 
In fact, uh, in between services, uh, Shelly, who's one of our staff members, she was telling me a time where she actually was in Tibet. And while she was there, she saw sheep who had wandered off. And one of them, they were tied together. And one of them landed in the water and drowned. And the other one was just there like this. <laughs> Waiting. Tied together by the neck, couldn't even move. This is who we get likened to. But I can see the correlation because as humans, we tend to wander. As humans, we know what's right, but we tend to do our own thing. We want to be in charge of ourselves. We tend to wander and stray. In fact, one could even say that as humans, we are led by our appetites. We want the new thing. We want the career. We want the success. We want the achievement. We want the, the relationship. And so we are led by our appetites even to the point where we will die and walk ourselves off of a cliff. This is exactly who we get likened to in the Bible. I'm deeply saddened by this. But at the same exact time, it is this understanding of a sheep, uh, of sheep that leads me to understand even more the importance of having a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. They need someone to lead them. And while in Matthew chapter 2, the Israelites were looking at the promise that was given that says uh, there will be a ruler who will shepherd his people. And they wanted a ruler who was currently in the moment with power. We can see in John chapter 10 when Jesus fulfills this and he says these words. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I believe that when we read this passage of Scripture, tucked inside of here are two truths that if we really were to extract out of this text, seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Micah, seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, as the shepherd who will rule, when we look at this, there are two truths in our, that we can take from this that will help us live our lives better and be more grateful as believers, and I believe God wants to show us those truths today. Uh, I've mentioned to you before that my wife and I were educators in New York City. Uh, we did that for a time, and one of the one of the factors uh, for me becoming an educator was actually the influence of our high school principal. His name was Mr. Leader. No pun intended. He was a phenomenal leader, though. He was excellent because typically in school systems, what you see is, especially a school our size, we had 4,500 students in the school. It was massive. Uh, it was a big school in the Bronx, and, 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 and my wife and I attended there. But here's what I know about principals as I've been in education. Oftentimes, principals really only know the winners and the sinners, right? They know the kids that are excelling, and they're going to be valedictorians, and then they know the kids that are truant, and they try to strike a balance occasionally, but that's really challenging. This principal that we had when we were in high school, I mean, for me personally, I wasn't a winner. I definitely was not a winner, okay? Your boy here had some struggles academically. And then when it came to being a, you know, I wasn't out with, you know, I wasn't truant. I knew enough to go to school and show up, okay? I knew to do that. But what I loved about this principal was he knew me personally. 4,500 students, I can't tell you how many times that man would come to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and make some sort of joke about a class that I was taking. And he knew my name. It's so cool to know that even in the midst of a school that's so big with procedures and policies that this principal knew me as a person. It was so cool. And what, what I love about it, it's, it's when we look at this passage of scripture, we see the same truth. And it leads to my first point. It's simply this. The good shepherd rules through relationship. Friends, listen to this. The Bible says in that same passage, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. That passage of scripture is very interesting. The word know there in, in the original language doesn't just to mean intellectually know, because that's what we think of. My wife and I have been off social media for a year now, but I can vividly remember uh, just because of social media, walking to places and going places, churches and events, and people will be like, hey, I know you. And I'd be like, no, you don't. <laughs> you think you do, but you definitely don't. Because this is what social media has done for us. It's convinced us that we know people because we're friends on, on Facebook or because we're followers on Instagram. Think of the amount of celebrities that in your own life, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not, I'm not even going to look. How many celebrities you think you actually know? You're like, yeah, you know Kim? I'm like, Kim who? Kim Kardashian. You know, that's my friend. You know, Kim, she's always like, and I'm like, really? Interesting. People think they know people because of social media. They think they're intimate with them. But what this verse is saying here is that I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. That word know doesn't mean Facebook know. It doesn't mean intellectually know. Listen to what it means. It literally means intimately know. It means that the shepherd intimately knows things about you. That he intimately knows things about your life that no one knows. Things that don't make the highlight reel of social media. He knows. He knows about you. When you are alone in your room and trying to figure things out, he knows. When you're joyful because of the things God is doing in your life, he knows. He intimately knows you. And, and the shepherd operates in this way. It's hard for us as Westerners to understand this, but for Easterners where, where this is written and who this is written to, they understood the shepherd-sheep relationship. Shepherd would have uh, this melody that they would sing for their sheep. That's the way they would draw them in. They had their unique voice, that their voice translated so well to the sheep, the sheep understood their voice. They would whip out a pipe at times and they'll begin to sing their little tune, right? Like, it'll be super cool, and all of a sudden, the sheep would come. In fact, this is spelled out so beautifully. I read a book by an author named Kenneth Bailey. He wrote a book called The Good Shepherd. It's a phenomenal book. The book talks about the shepherd role from Psalm 23 all the way to the New Testament. Powerful book and how God is our shepherd. And when I was reading that book, he tells a story of something that happened in the mid-30s during the riots that were happening in Palestine. And he was saying that some officers came and confiscated um, some sheep and cattle of a nearby village. And they told the, the, the people that owned those sheep and cattle that you can rebuy your sheep and cattle, but it had to be at a fixed price. And amongst the people there was a young orphan boy who was uh, very young, and he only owned six to eight sheep. That's all he owned in his entire life, six to eight sheep. And the story goes on to say that uh, the young man somehow mustered up all the materials and resources he needs to purchase back his sheep. And he went to the, to the gate where the officer was and says, hey, I'm here to buy my sheep back. And the officer laughed at him because he said, there's no way in the midst of 100 plus sheep you're going to be able to identify yours. But the shepherd knew different. He knew better. And so that young shepherd boy whipped out his pipe and was like, and he began to sing his melody and began to sing his song. And would you believe that six to eight sheep began to trot themselves out because they heard the voice of their shepherd? Friends, this is the type of relationship. This is the type of relationship that God wants to have with you.
The good shepherd is not looking for a relationship where you solely just come to church, you lift your hands, and you leave. He is looking for an intimate relationship with you. Your father may not have been able to be intimate with you, but God wants to be intimate with you. Your parents may have omitted you. You may have been the type of person that maybe you didn't have friends in school, but the good shepherd says, I know these people. I know you. I know you, my son. I know you, my daughter. And he wants to intimately know you. You may have hundreds of friends on Facebook, Facebook, but not one of them really care about you or know about you. But God doesn't want to just intellectually know you. He wants to intimately know you. I've seen this practice out recently in my own life. I was here at the offices during rehearsal a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night. And I was, I was in the office as the team was rehearsing. I was catching up on some work. And immediately this feeling of anxiety just began to come over me. I was, my thoughts began to race and then the anxiety led to feeling down about myself and my thoughts were just racing. And it was a solid 45 seconds to a minute. It was pretty long. It felt longer. It felt like an eternity. And in a moment, like something clicked and I just said, literally out loud, whoever walked by, I feel bad if they heard me because it probably sounded like I was talking to myself because I said, that's not your voice, God. That's not my shepherd's voice. The anxiety, that's not my shepherd's voice. The condemnation, that's not my shepherd's voice. The guilt, that's not my shepherd's voice. He doesn't speak like that. Friends, this is what happens when you intimately know the good shepherd. You begin to distinguish his voice from others. So when things are said to you or about you, you can go, that is not God's word over me. That is not his promise to me. He is the good shepherd who knows me and I know him. I threw, wor I threw some worship music on in that room and I began to sing. And all of a sudden, it was like it lifted off of me. Friends, can I encourage you today that no matter what you are facing, there is a good shepherd who wants to intimately know you. He's not looking for you to check your attendance at church. He's not looking to see how long you stay online. He's looking for a deep, deep, deep relationship with you. I love there's an author named Lee Strobel who wrote a book called The Case for Christ. He was an investigative journalist here in Chicago. He worked for the Chicago Tribune. And he was an atheist and decided to go on this hunt to see if Christianity was real. If Jesus was who he says he was. And he says this quote that I love. He says, Jesus, Jesus is my forgiver, my leader, and my friend. In our walk with Jesus, I've noticed in my life that there are times where I really just, I get stuck after here. I go, oh, Jesus is my forgiver. I know that. Oh, Jesus is my leader. I know that. But I forget Jesus is my friend. And how many times in your own life have you allowed yourself to forget that Jesus doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants a relationship with you. The creator of the heavens and the earth wants to know you intimately. He cares about you. He desires to know you inside and out. He wants to know everything about you. And this is the power of the good shepherd who's prophesied about in Matthew chapter 2. And while people wanted a ruler who was going to be momentary and give them momentary peace, he comes as a good shepherd that's not just going to rule, rule through policy, but he's trying to rule through relationship. He wants to know you. In fact, I love one of my mentors, Pastor Tim Delina. He, he taught me this. He says, rules without relationship equal rebellion. And we see that in Exodus chapter 20 during the Ten Commandments. You know, it's interesting. The Ten Commandments is a pretty long chapter, but that chapter starts off by saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. God establishes his relationship with you over the rules. 
He cares about the relationship with you over the rules that he'll lay out for you. And this is what I want you to know today. While you're trying to live perfect and, and, and check off boxes of this being like a behavior modification type scenario, God is more concerned about a relationship that you can have with him because he knows that if you can get intimate with him, he knows that if you can develop a relationship with him, that you won't be concerned about the rules because you'll be concerned about his heart. He says it in scripture. Jesus says it. If you love me, you'll obey me. When we know the relationship we have with the good shepherd, it causes us to obey him. It causes us to love him. And that leads me to the second and final point today. Not only is he a good shepherd who rules through relationships, but he's a good shepherd who rules us through sacrifice. The good shepherd rules through sacrifice. John 10, 15, right at the end of that, that verse that I read to you, not only does he declare that he's the good shepherd that knows you and wants to know you, but he declares, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's interesting, again, because we don't understand this, but what would happen during this time is that because sheep would wander, there were a lot of predators that would come around. In David's day, we see David kill lions and bears as a, as a way to save the sheep. He tells that story. In this day, when Jesus was, was speaking, the, the animal that would have been the, the choice animal to kill shepherd, or excuse me, sheep were, would be wolves. Bandits as well. Thieves would come as well because sheep were a commodity. They were a, a form of money. And so the, sh the shepherd had not only to lay down his life in protecting from wolves, but he had to put his life on the line to protect his sheep from thieves and bandits as well. That word sacrifice is something that is thrown out pretty often, but I, I don't know if we understand it. Here's the definition of, sh of, of sacrifice. It means the surrender of something prized or, des or desirable for the sake of something considered as having a higher or more pressing claim. Every time I think of sacrifice, I think of my wife. I, my wife and I, like I said, we went to high school together. So when she was 16, you could ask her, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she would say the same thing. I want to be a teacher, and then I want to be a stay-at-home mom. She's been saying that since she was 16 years old. And I saw my wife work so hard in college. Like I saw her work to become a teacher. I saw uh, how she sacrificed and how things were challenging, but she always gave her best foot forward, and she always persevered in the long commutes in the wintertime when it's cold in New York, and she persevered. And then she, she, she finally became a teacher. And she's working with these amazing students. She worked in such a tough neighborhood in New York, in the Bronx. She worked in this area that was so drug infested. Kids were just struggling. Their parents were struggling. And she just loved those kids so much. Did such an amazing job teaching them. I mean, she would come home tired and put together a lesson plan that would be like extensive with decorations and stuff. And I was like, man, that's nice. I'm not doing that. But I saw her, I, when we were married, she was working on her master's degree. I saw her work on and come home tired and have to go to a class and, and then have to do work for the class and then wake up the next morning and teach again. I saw all those things. I saw how she gave and gave and gave just to get to this place where she was a teacher. And then one day, she finds out she's pregnant. And she knew that it was more important for her to be in the life of her children than to look at all the accomplishments she had received. And so in a moment, she gave up everything she worked hard for. I mean, you talk about surrendering something prized. She had gotten a master's degree. She worked so hard 
to become a phenomenal teacher and in a moment knew that her daughter was of higher value. God sacrificed for us. God gave up his son, his precious son. If someone needed my son for anything, if I can save multitudes by giving up my son as an earthly father, the answer is absolutely not. I love my children. But God, knowing better than us, loving better than us, wanting a truer relationship than we can ever do, decided that the best thing would be to give up his one and only son to live a life that we should have lived, but he, we couldn't. And when I think about this, the shepherd knows that we're going to wander. The shepherd knows we're going to stray. The shepherd knows that our appetites will lead us to places and to things that are not of him. And in spite of all those things, he still chose to sacrifice and give up his son. I mean, we just go by the Christmas season so fast. Can we soak that in for a moment? That the God of the universe knew that the only way to make things right so that we can be in relationship would be to sacrifice his son. That's why all of Jerusalem was so upset. That's why King Herod was so upset because they just wanted a ruler who would make them feel good in the moment, not a ruler who would walk them and shepherd them into paradise, into eternity. I love how Pastor Tim Keller says it. He's a pastor out of New York. Um, and he says it this way. This quote is so powerful to me. He says, whatever you base your life on, you have to live up to that. Jesus is the one Lord you can live for who already died for you. Friends, Jesus has died for you. The Savior has come to shepherd us. And attached with the shepherding is the desire not just to be in relationship with you. I'm not talking church attendance. But he's looking to have a relationship but he's also looking to have a moment where he can sacrifice for you. The best way I always think about it, because I like images, I just imagine there being an island, two islands that face each other. And let's say for the sake of the story that God is an island, and let's say we're an island. And the thing that separates those two islands is water. Those islands are separated by water. And for the sake of the analogy, let's just say that water is sin. So that we're separated by God because of our sin. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that does not please God. And there's nothing. There are rules created, the Ten Commandments. There are rules that people have to live by. But God saw that the rules weren't working. That there was no way for us to live out the rules because of the work that's inside of us to be a ruler of ourselves. He saw that the, 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 the only way for there to be communion between one island and another and to, to bridge closer this gap of water is to send his son and die on the cross to become a bridge. And with Jesus dying on the cross, we have access now to the Father. We have the ability to go into this deeper relationship with him. See, because at one point, we were content with just looking at how good things were God were over there, but there was no way for us to get there. But God valued and prioritized relationship, even at the expense of sacrifice. He gave up his life. God sent his son to die on the cross to give up his life so that we can have access from one side of the island to the other. This is called being born again. 
Born again is not a phrase that churches just throw around. This is a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. This comes from the Bible, John chapter 3. Nicodemus is funny. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, I've heard so many great things about you. You're an awesome man. Literally, read it, John chapter 3. Jesus doesn't even respond to what he says and goes, hey, if you want to inherit the kingdom, you've got to be born again. Jesus saw past what he was saying to get to the heart of the issue. And the truth is, each of us cannot be good in our own way. We are all sheep. We're going to stray. Each of us cannot rule our own lives. The, the proof is in the pudding. Look at your life and look at the areas where you've fallen. And you look at those moments and go, man, those are times where I was trying to be in charge. The only way to bridge the gap between God and us is through the death of his son. And it's called being born again. I'm going to ask you in this moment, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? We do this so that no one gets distraction, distracted with any movements. If you're at home or you're watching with us online, please close your eyes and bow your head. This is a moment to hear the words that are being spoken and let it resonate in your heart. You may be saying, Pastor, I, I, I realize, yes, he is a good shepherd, but I, I realize that I've not had a relationship with him. I've had a religion with him. I come to church, I check in, I check out. I realize that I've, I've tried to live a good life, but I, I'm realizing as you're speaking that I don't have that relationship with him. What do I got to do? How do I become born again? Being born again is as easy as ABC. A, you have to admit that you are a sinner. That's what Paul writes in Romans when he says there's no one good, no, not one. You got to admit that you made some mistakes in your life. That's the first thing. B, you have to believe. In that same conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And lastly, you have to confess. Paul writes in Romans, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. I believe there are a group of people here today and even online who have tried to have religion with the shepherd and he's not calling for that, he's calling for relationship. If you're here today with no one looking around, I promise there's no one gonna make a spectacle of you. If you're here today and you go, Pastor, that's me. I need to be born again. I want to start my relationship with Jesus. Would you lift your hands? I just want to pray with you. I see that hand. Praise God. I see that hand. Yep. I see that hand. Yep. I see that hand in the back. Amen. I see that other hand. I see that hand in the back. I see that hand over here. Praise God. I see that hand. Those online, if you're, if you're praying, if you want to pray the prayer, just put it in the chat. Just say, I want to pray the prayer. And there'll be a number that comes up that you can text in a moment. Praise God. We're going to pray together. I need everyone to help me in this moment. I need everyone to, to, to shout out with a loud voice. Repeat this prayer after me. Come on, say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. You faced hell for me, so I wouldn't have to and you rose again to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to be born again. God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is my home. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hey, man, amen.
something I noticed uh, in the past few services when we've given an opportunity for people to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Whenever we pray the prayer at the end, I notice that they're like golf claps. Like at the end, everyone's like, yeah, amen, amen. But here's what I know. Luke chapter 15 t tells me that when one sheep comes home, the Bible tells us that there's a celebration in heaven. The Bible tells me for one, there's a party happening. The Bible tells me that when one person comes home, the angels are turning up and they're saying, praise God, hallelujah. He is the lamb that was slain.